Go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 13, the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah as we finish up this uh, 13-week sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah. I started about 13 weeks ago with the question, what is God doing? What is God doing? And, And part of that question is, is God doing anything? Is he at work in our world today? And that's a great, deep, theological, meaty, Bible study sort of question, but it's also a very personal question, and I think it often comes out like this. God, where are you? Where are you? God, are you at work today? Why is there so much hardship in the world? Why so much pain and loss? Why are there wars, pandemics, personal hurts and tragedy? God, are you at work? Where are you? This is not a new question for us today. We might look at our world and contemporary situations and say, oh my goodness, look at what's going on. But this question, this doubt, this struggle is as old as humanity itself, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Does God really care? Where is God at work? And is he doing anything? It's why books like Ezra and Nehemiah and the Old Testament and so many others are so helpful because it is a record of the history of God at work in and through his people saying, I am working. I am present. I know it is hard. And we can learn who God is and how he works. We can learn about his loving nature and his purposes in creation and throughout history. And we can see how he's working to love us and to bring about his perfect plan according to his perfect nature. He is working for his glory and our good. But if we don't know who God is or know how he works, he will be at work and we will not see it. We'll miss it. Because we won't understand that that's God doing that. We'll give the credit to something else or someone else or take it for ourselves. And so today we're going to wrap up this sermon series called God at Work. By looking at Nehemiah 13 and briefly just reviewing the series and looking forward to Easter, which ties in so well. And for the last time, I need to give, again, the context. I've tried to do this every week. The historical context of Ezra and Nehemiah, because I know they're not the most popular books. Maybe you're not all that familiar with them. But they are the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. It's the end of the Old Testament history. After this, there will be about 400 years of silence where we don't really have the record in Scripture of what the Israelites were doing and what God was doing. And we we jump then to the New Testament. Yes, there are books after this. They are prophets and, and other things, but they're looking back in history. They occurred prior to this time. So to catch us up historically, you have God calling his people through his servant Abraham into a relationship with him. And he forms and shapes these people called the Israelites. They become enslaved in Egypt. And God rescues them. Their salvation story saves them out of Egypt. Maybe you know the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Miraculously, he saves them out of Egypt, brings them into the desert. And there he gives them his law, his word, his covenant. He says, this is what it's going to look like. I have saved you. This is what it looks like to live in a relationship with me. He establishes them into the land that he gives them, the promised land. We know it today is the nation of Israel. 
And it seems like everything would be great. God's rescued them. He saved them. He's established his relationship, his covenant with them. There they are in the land. And of course, they're going to trust in this God that's done amazing and wonderful things, but they don't. And they sin over and over again. And they rebel against God over and over again. And he sends prophets to warn them time and time again, come back, come back, come back. And they refuse to listen. And eventually he says, I'm going to allow a nation to come in and conquer you. You have not listened. You don't want this relationship with me. And the land and the blessings were contingent on that relationship. And so he allows a foreign army to come in, first in the northern kingdom of Israel, then the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're both taken in exile into foreign kingdoms. And that's where the history picks up for Ezra and Nehemiah. First in Ezra, we have Zerubbabel, this governor that leads a group back to Israel, and he establishes or rebuilds the temple. And then Ezra leads a group back to Israel, and he establishes the teaching of God's law and the renewing of an understanding of who God is and what he's doing. And then Nehemiah comes along, and he comes back, and he builds the wall and leads God's people to rebuild the walls of the holy city of Jerusalem. And again, it's like everything's going great, but we've seen throughout Ezra and Nehemiah that people are still sinners, and they still struggle, and they still rebel. But through this all, we learn a lot about how God is at work. And so I want to take chapter 13 to kind of summarize some big themes from the entirety of Ezra and Nehemiah, but we're going to dig into the text as well. I'm going to read it in portions to kind of look at some themes. And the first thing that really stands out to me, and that I praise God for, is that God works through broken people. As you read Ezra and you read Nehemiah, I don't think there is any hiding the fact that these are broken, messed up people. And it's easy to read these these books and say, what's wrong with you people? But we need to also look in the mirror and go, man, I'm a lot more like them than I want to say that I am, than I care to admit. But there's a mercy in this that God works through broken people. Do you ever feel like you just keep facing the same old struggles, same old temptations, same old failures? Same old thing. If we go back to Nehemiah chapter 10, there, were, there was in Nehemiah chapter 10 a public reading of the word of God, public confession of sin, and then they stand up and they sign this document. We are making a commitment before each other and before the Lord God, and they make three specific commitments. Chapter 10, verse 30, they promise not to intermarry with the people from the surrounding nations. I'm not going to go over this in depth, but, but in case you missed it, this is not about racial purity of the Jewish people. It's about religious purity. It was to keep the idolatry of the foreign nations from coming in. We talked about how there were exceptions. We looked at Ruth and Rahab. Ruth was an Moabite and Rahab was a Canaanite, both of which the Israelites were told not to marry. But they became Jewish and they married into the Jewish nation and they're listed in the lineage of Jesus Christ. As, as people held up of incredible faith. So this is not about racial purity or not intermarrying with races. It's about religious purity, not intermarrying with someone who is not of the same religion as you because they will pull you away. And we talked about that in other sermons, so I'm not going to go into depth there. But this was one of their commitments. We will not intermarry with the surrounding nations. Chapter 10, verse 31, they made another commitment. We will keep the Sabbath holy. We will do no work. We will buy or sell no goods on the Sabbath day. This was a, a, an important part of the Old Testament law for God's Jewish people. 
Chapter 10, verse 32 to 39, they committed to the upkeep of the temple and to make sure they supplied food and, and supplies for the priests and the people that worked in the temple. We will make sure we keep the temple going. So these three public commitments in chapter 10, don't intermarry with surrounding nations, do not buy or sell on the Sabbath, take care of those who work at the temple. And then we get to chapter 13. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. It's before some of your time, that's okay. I'm getting old enough to say that now, I'm kind of proud of that. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 13, let me read for you verses 1 through 3. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Wait a minute. They just did that. A couple chapters ago. Big public commitment. We'll never do this again. They've done it again. They went right back to it. Same old struggle. They had to be reminded again not to intermarry with these people. And then look at verse uh, chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, at some point in this this text here, he has gone back to Persia. And as far as we can tell historically, was probably gone about 10 to 12 years. And he comes back. They've had these great revivals, this incredible reform, and he led them through this, and Ezra led, and everything's going great. And so he goes away, and he comes back, and what do you think he finds? It's a mess. Same old problems, same old stories. He finds that people have broken all three of these commitments. Don't intermarry. Don't buy or sell on the Sabbath and provide for the temple workers. Look at 13, 23 to 24. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Same old story. Same old struggle. Now, we have to understand what's going on here with the kids not knowing the Jewish language. Again, this is not just trying to hold on to a culture. What language was the scripture written in? The Jewish language. Yeah, today we have, we have all these translations. They didn't have that. If you were going to hear and understand the Jewish scriptures, you had to know the Jewish language. And foundational to the Jewish educational system. In their schools, what they would do is pour over Scripture. These kids of God's people don't even know the Jewish language. They're not being taught their language. They're clearly not studying Scripture in school. The people are failing to hold on to their religious purity. So they're not doing well with the first commitment about not intermarrying. Well, maybe they'll do better with keeping the Sabbath, right? Look at verses 15 and 16. Yeah, there we go. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. 
Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on Sabbath to the people of Judah. So how are they doing with this public commitment? Again, they all stood up. They had a whole day of confession and repentance. They said, we will not do this anymore. And Nehemiah goes back and they're doing it all over again. They're buying and selling and working on the Sabbath. They were not keeping the Sabbath holy. So there's two commitments. What about the third regarding taking care of the temple? I think you can probably see where this is going. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 13. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? Good old Tobiah. Our buddy, our pal Tobiah, right? No, an enemy of the people of Israel. I believe it was an Ammonite. He worked against Nehemiah. He tried to kill the people of Israel while they were working on the the wall. And it was only God's intervention and Nehemiah's leadership that saved them from this. This is not a good guy. He's not even Jewish. He should not be allowed to set foot in the temple area. Look, Look at what's going on. He was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So, so the picture here, in case you're missing it, there's a room in the temple. It's a storeroom. It's a closet, a large closet. And they would store important things for the temple worship. Namely, all the stuff that the priests and the musicians and anybody that worked in the temple, everything they needed for the public worship was in there. Along with that, they would go and live there at the temple. Their food, everything they needed was stored in this room. And this one priest, Eliashib, clears out the room and allows Tobiah to move in or use it for his personal use. Somebody who would not, according to God's law, even be allowed on the premises of the temple. He is given a room. This is an enemy. He's a horrible man. And he's allowed to move into the temple. If you skip down to verse 7, uh, in the middle it says, Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done. This is after Nehemiah returns. And providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God, I was greatly displeased. We'll come back and look at what Nehemiah does in a moment. So here they are, they've made a commitment to keep the temple running and provide for the people, and they've cleared out the room that's set aside for that and given it to this guy that is an enemy of God's people. We can go down further, verse 12. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, uh, actually back up, sorry, verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Why is that? Why didn't they have any food? Why did they have to go back home and work their own fields? Because the room where their food was stored had been cleared out and they had no food at the temple. They had to go back to their homes and go back to work to provide for themselves. You see the trickle-down effects of these bad decisions? It's a mess. They are not keeping their commitment of the upkeep of the temple. 
So these three public commitments, do not intermarry with the people of the surrounding nations, keep the Sabbath holy and provide for the temple workers. These public commitments, they signed a document saying we will do this and they have already failed in all three before the end of Nehemiah. Have you ever thought, God, this time will be different? New leaf, new me, new decisions, new day, new resolution. It's a new year, turning over a new leaf. This time will be different. How many times has that worked out for you? This is a theme that runs, I think, kind of a subtext underneath all of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're coming back into the land and they're thinking, we're going to get it right this time. Our ancestors screwed up. We're going to do it right. And they don't. Because they're sinners just like their ancestors and just like us. They think if we just try a little harder, we won't fail. We'll do better but they still fail. I think there's two really crucial, important lessons to learn from this. Number one is our effort is not enough. It's never enough. We cannot work harder to fix ourselves. We need something more. Spoiler, next week is the something more. Good Friday and Easter. We need Jesus Christ. But the other thing I see is that as broken as these people are, as messed up and as often as they rebel against God, God still worked through the nation of Israel. This bunch of losers is used by God throughout history. And I'm not saying losers to pick on them because I'm looking at this and go, man, if he can use them, he can use a loser like me. I'm still a sinner. I still repeat the same old things and go, God, this time will be different. And yet God still uses us. And there's hope for us to look at this and say, God is at work through broken people. He can work in and through us too. Another thing we see throughout these books and specifically in this chapter is that God is at work in broken leaders. God works through broken leaders. I've struggled throughout this series, I'll be honest with you, because the topic of leadership comes up over and over again throughout these books. And it's hard being a leader in a church, to preach on leadership. It seems very self-serving. So I've kind of avoided it a little bit. We've touched on it here and there. But in chapter 13, the more I read this, I said, we've got to dig into the heart of biblical leadership because God works through God-focused leaders. Leadership is almost a bad word today. We've seen so many leaders that become proud arrogant, even abusive. We've seen leaders, especially spiritual leaders, that fail and fall spiritually and morally. We constantly hear news stories about religious leaders caught in horrible sin. And so we think maybe, well, let's just throw out the idea of leadership. We don't need leadership. All leadership is evil. All authority is bad. And that's kind of the direction we're going in, in churches and in our culture. Let's just do away with leaders. But scripture is clear, God works through leaders. And all leaders that God works through, except his son Jesus Christ, are broken people, messed up people. And yet God works through them. Let's look at what Nehemiah does in this chapter. It's amazing. Look at all the ways he acts as a leader. Look at Nehemiah 13, 7 through 13. 
Starting in verse 7, he came back to Jerusalem. He learned about the thing that Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. We just talked about that. Look at what he does. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Verse 12, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. What did Nehemiah do? Did he sit back and say, oh, not my thing, not my problem? Did he get a committee together? Let's just take a big vote on how to do this. He got involved and he took action to bring a messed up situation back to what it was supposed to be. Remember, they weren't keeping the Sabbath. How does he respond to that? Look at verses 17 to 22. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gate so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. He didn't just step back and say, well, that's, that's, I'm just really the one that built the walls. This is not my thing. He gets involved. He takes action. He rebukes the leaders of Israel. He goes to the guards of the gate and orders them shut. He even goes outside at night and tells the people that are camping out there that shouldn't be there, go home or I'm going to arrest you. He takes action. Remember the third commitment of the people not to intermarry? What does Nehemiah do here? Look at verses 25 to 28. He says, I rebuked them. These are the ones that are intermarried and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that King Solomon, or Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Now, I want to be careful here. It's very interesting to read commentators on this passage. Some 
take Nehemiah and say, oh, good, strong, bold, decisive leader. Look at what he did. We should all be like that. So I'm going to start pulling out people's hair and like publicly beating them. I don't think that's the application. But others go the other way. Well, Nehemiah was wrong in doing this. We can see that as a leader, he stepped over his bounds and he shouldn't have done this. I think that's missing the point too. You see, this was a very honor and shame-based culture. And there are other places in scripture where they pull out someone's hair, they even publicly beat them as an act to shame them. They did something wrong and it was an appropriate judgment. I don't think this is Nehemiah just going up and beating somebody up. And now again, all we know is what it says. It doesn't say if what he did was right or wrong, but the entirety of the context of this book shows that this is a godly man. Doesn't mean everything he did was perfect and right, but I do think it's very possible that culturally understanding this, we can see that this was an appropriate way to publicly discipline someone. I'm not saying culturally appropriate today, okay? I'm not going to beat somebody up for the cause of Jesus Christ. Don't think that's what we're called to do. What I do want to point out, though, is he didn't just let it go. Nehemiah took action. These people had made a commitment to God and they had broken it and he doesn't just let it go. We see this has gone all the way to one of the sons of the high priest. He has allowed his son to intermarry with uh, Sanballat's either daughter or granddaughter. It's a little unclear in the language. Who was Sanballat? He was a really good buddy of Tobiah. He was not an Israelite, so he shouldn't have been married to her in the first place. And he was a wicked, horrible, awful person that tried to kill Israelites for being obedient to God. That's who he was. He spread lies and rumors about Nehemiah and the Israelites when they were building the wall. He was a horrible person. And he is he's exhibiting or, or, or bringing pressure on this son of the high priest. He's influencing what the people of God are doing. And so what does Nehemiah do? He sends him away. I drove him away from me. He takes action. Nehemiah is not perfect. He is a broken man, just like all of us. But he is a leader who is used by God to direct God's people. And I want to point out three or four things about godly leaders before we move on. And the first is this. It's amazing in each one of these situations how Nehemiah brings scripture to bear on the situation. Nehemiah is not just doing whatever he wants or whatever he feels right. He's going to the word of God. Godly leaders point people to God's word. That's, that's something I see about Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. Another thing I see is that godly leaders get involved. They get involved. Sometimes even down into the details in a messed up situation and say, I'm bringing order to this situation. They get involved. He is involved in setting up a schedule for the city gates. He sets up a system for keeping the temple storeroom stocked. He publicly addresses the people behind the scenes. He's working on the details to keep people obedient to God. Sometimes I hear people say, lovingly, and, and I get where they're coming from. Dave, you're involved in too much in the church. And I get it. There's the micromanaging, and I'm guilty of that at times. But leadership is being involved. It, it has to be being involved. It has to be getting into the details and bringing order to a broken situation. And yeah, not holding on to it, but it has to be getting involved. I remember the stories of 9-11. When the Twin Towers fell, 
And, and of course, on the news, we saw people running away from the rubble and from the dust, and it was awful, and they're trying to save their life and protect themselves, and I get and that's what they should be doing. They're running away, but there's another story that came out through it. Do you remember? There were those running toward the situation. The first responders ran toward the situation. That's what I see in Nehemiah. That's what I see in godly leadership throughout Scripture. Godly leaders run toward the difficult situation, not away from it. They get involved. Godly leaders work to keep people focused on God. Nehemiah constantly, yes, he rebuked them and corrected them in their sin so that they could focus on God. His purpose is not his own leadership or his position. It is to keep their focus on God. Number four, godly leaders take leadership seriously. They take it seriously. They feel called to that. Nehemiah was put in this position. He chose this position and it was given to him and affirmed over and over again. And he wanted to be faithful. If you've been following along with what we've been reading, you've noticed I've skipped a few passages. And I want to go back to them now. But before we do, I want to set the scene. Nehemiah was a servant in Persia, but if you remember, he was a cupbearer to the king. And I said at that time, that was a very high-ranking position. Like, we think servant as slave and and your horrible, lowly person. No, he was way up there in the Persian government. The other thing we find out is he was incredibly wealthy. There are things in the rebuilding of the temple or the the wall and other things. He gave of his own money. He didn't receive the money from the people. He provided food for hundreds of people day in and day out. He was incredibly wealthy. I say all that to understand he had a good life in Persia. And he could have gone back to it and stayed there. And he didn't. He chose to go back because he took leadership serious. Look at verse 14 of chapter 13. Listen to the words of Nehemiah that are interjected throughout this chapter. He talks about what he was doing in the temple and, and, and the storeroom and bringing order to that. Verse 14, remember me for this, my God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its service. If you skip down to verse 22, he talks about bringing order to the Sabbath and setting up the schedules. He says, remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And if you go to the very last words of the book of Nehemiah in chapter 13, verse 31, he says, remember me with favor, my God. And again, I've seen some commentators, some people take this, say, oh, Nehemiah is just being selfish here. I don't think so at all. This is the heart of one whose heart beats to bring glory to God. And he has poured out his life to do that very thing as a leader of God's people. And he wants the focus to be there. God, I've done this for you. He takes seriously that he's been called to be a leader. I don't believe this is selfishness. It is a passion for service to his Lord. This is what leaders do. They run into difficult situations to point people to God for God's glory. Godly leaders do this for the glory of God. And friends, and churches, and families, and communities, and countries, we need godly leaders. 
one of the side effects, I think, of, of kind of losing a biblical understanding of leadership is that what I find often is others don't want to step into leadership. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I love those people. You're so wonderful and it's great when we have events, things going on in the church and they're willing to get involved in any way. Great, can you oversee this group of people? Oh no, I can't do that. We need godly leaders that step into those difficult situations to bring order, point people to God for the sake of God's glory. God uses broken people like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Dave Day, all of our elders we've ever had. We're all broken people. Anybody that leads a committee or group in this, this church, anybody that's taught Sunday school or Bible school, we're broken people. Welcome to the club. You can get involved too. We need more godly leaders who are willing to recognize their brokenness and serve because they believe God is faithful. Finally, this isn't in Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 13. But I think it is a good summary of all of Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't know if you remember back, I don't expect you to, but if you remember back to the last sermon I preached on Ezra, I called it Something's Missing. And I was really tempted to call this sermon Something's Missing, but I think it would have ignored a lot of important stuff in the passage. But if you remember, at the end of Ezra, they had made all these commitments to the Lord and they were going to worship him and, and, and they tried and, and they set up the temple. But we talked about how the temple was actually empty. There was nothing in the Holy of Holies. They were doing these, these uh, religious services to an empty temple. And we talked about how something was missing in their life and how something's still missing today. And I think we see similar themes in the book of Nehemiah. They've set up the city. They've reestablished these covenants. They've made these public commitments. This time will be different. And it's not. And something is missing. They're still struggling. They still can't fix themselves. And it happens again and again and again. And I think throughout all of these two books, or both of these books, we see this idea that things will be better, and yet they're not. They tried harder, and they still failed. And I believe this is one of the reasons that Ezra and Nehemiah are in Scripture. To remind us it's not about our work, it's about God's work. We see that God is at work in Ezra and Nehemiah. He has not abandoned his people even though they've rebelled against him. He is still at work. These two books also show us we need something more than just an organization of a city, organization of ministries, or laws and rules. Something is missing. And the thing that is missing is that the cross of Jesus Christ is ultimately the focus of all of God's work. Ezra and Nehemiah point us ahead. They have prepared a temple. They have prepared a city. They have prepared a people. And one day, Jesus Christ would come riding into not just any city, this city. Today's Palm Sunday. Jesus Christ rode through the gates that Ezra set up. Ah, They'd been demolished and rebuilt, but stick with me. But he rides into this city. He stands in this temple, which had also been remodeled, and he preaches to them. And he tells them one greater than Abraham has come. 
And he points out that he is the Son of God that has come to take away the sin of the world. And it's in this city that he will be put on trial. And it's just outside the walls of this city that he'll be hung on a cross and put to death. Next week, or later this week rather, on Good Friday and Easter, we will celebrate and remember and remind ourselves of what was missing for Ezra and Nehemiah. That God's greatest work and everything else that God does is pointing to this greatest work. The focal point of his work is his son, Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at this this morning in my Sunday school class, but I think they're so appropriate for the sermon today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. You talk about something's missing. Paul lays it out for us there. Here's the situation we find ourselves in. Lost, dead, enemies of the God who created us. Praise God he doesn't stop there. He goes on, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You want to know if God's at work today? You want to know if he's at work in your life? Look to the cross and the empty tomb. That is the answer to every single question of whether or not he's doing anything. Because if we can start there and say, if he would do that, he will never give up on us. And the answer to the question, is God at work, is always a resounding yes. God is at work. And the focal point of his work is the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus died in our place. That greatest need that we had that we could never fill in ourselves, that no amount of organization in our lives or our world or our country could possibly fix. The greatest need, we are dead in our sins and he took our place on the cross and died in our place. And our greatest need that we needed to be brought from death to life and he rose from the grave and promises eternal life to all who believe. Good Friday and Easter are the focal points in human history of the work of God. Everything before the cross points to the cross. Everything after the cross relies on the cross. All that we are as God's people depends on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is still at work. Look to the cross. In my first sermon on Ezra and Nehemiah, I said in my conclusion of that sermon, thinking about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Be prepared to be disappointed. And people laughed. The point was, 
As we read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, yes, there are these high points where things go really great, but by and large, there's no great change among God's people. They do a little bit better, and then they do worse. And then they do better, and they do worse. And maybe you can identify with that. And yet God is still faithful and faithfully works in and through them and in their situation. I believe this disappointment that runs in these books is very intentional by God. It causes us to carefully look at our our own work and our own efforts and realize we are not enough. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. The disappointment that we should feel in Ezra and Nehemiah shows us that God's work's not done. And it should cause us to rejoice that we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and died in our place and rose from the dead. And so let me conclude this series by asking you, has God done the greatest work in human history in your life? He's done everything necessary and possible. He sent his son to die in your place and to rise from the grave, promising eternal life. So that if you believe in him and give your life to him, you are brought from death to life. And God is at work and he wants to work in you. Is God at work in your life? Have you accepted that work in your life? Have you given your life to him and trusted in what he's done through Jesus Christ? Because if I don't leave this sermon series without offering that to you. I don't think I'm doing my job. And I believe God wants to work in your life just as much as he did in Nehemiah and Ezra and the people of that day and anybody else sitting in this room. And so you need to look to the cross and the empty tomb. God's work is not about you just working harder and doing better and fixing some things in your life. It's about what God has done for you by sending his son to die in your place. That you can be saved. It's about being made new in Christ and living in the freedom that God's work in our life provides and saying as we're about to sing in our last song, it's not me, it's not I, it's all about Jesus Christ and what he has done in my life. God is at work. Watch for where he's at work. Get involved in that work in whatever way you can. Step out in faith and see how God can use you. And when you struggle and you say, it's the same old thing and I'm broken and I I just can't do any better, come back to God. He understands. He's been working with people just like you for a very long time. God is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I hope in these 13 weeks that we've walked through them, that you have convicted us of some things, opened our eyes to some things in our world and our lives, helped us to get a greater picture of you and how you've worked through your people throughout the ages, helped us to identify with both their failures and successes, and ultimately pointed us to your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who has never received your son as their savior, may today be the day that they can point back to a date in their life that they can say, God did an amazing work when he saved me. And God, for those of us who have accepted your son as our savior, may we wake up every day reminding ourselves who you are and that you are still at work. You haven't given up on us and you haven't given up on this world. And may we step out in faith in our jobs and our our families, learning lessons we see from the old times, trusting in you and constantly keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. 
to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, that we have new life, and we have the good news of the gospel to offer to those who are still lost, hopeless, and helpless. May we live in such a way that we demonstrate Christ to them, and may we take every opportunity that you give us to proclaim the message of the gospel of peace that saves them, that others could have their eyes open to how you are at work, and they can see that work being done in their lives as well. We pray all this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.